Thank you, Dennis. I am very, very thankful for the crews of people that make it possible for you and I to show up here to a warm building with shoveled sidewalks. So thank you, everybody, that does all the work that you do behind the scenes. <clears throat> so they called it gold fever. And guys who were, and gals, uh, back in the 1800s were hearing about this big gold rush out west. And some of them decided that they wanted to cash in on it. One such guy uh, was a man by the last name of Darby. And he heard about this gold fever. He decided he wanted to strike it rich, so he came out to Colorado. And he, he staked his claim. And he started mining a little bit, and lo and behold, he struck gold. He got that first little piece of ore, and he dug a little more, and he found some more gold. He thought, well, I'm in a, a vein here. I, I've, I've found something. So he secretly kind of covers it all back up. Then he back, back steps and goes secretly back to Maryland, where he was from, and he tells his, his neighbors about what he had just discovered and a few family members. So they raise up some funds to buy some equipment. So they're going to all come out here, out to Colorado, and they're going to start their mine. So they do that. They get the equipment there. They get the, uh, the, the mine cars there, the rails. They, they start drilling back, and they continue to find gold. Only it comes up short. They drilled down and drilled down, and they finally got the last mine car out, but they still fell short of their investment. Discouraged, they decided, well, we're going to sell all of our equipment. So for a few hundred dollars, they sold all that equipment to a local junk dealer and just said, forget it. So the local junk dealer, he finds out where they'd been mining. And he goes and he gets a mining engineer. And the mining engineer does a little survey and says, you know what? I don't think they really understood the fault lines in this area. So what do they do? They get the drills back out. They go to the same area. And they just drill an additional three feet from where the other guys left off. And they strike one of the biggest gold mines in Colorado. Man, if this guy would have just persisted a little while longer, he would have struck those riches that he was drilling for. And you know, I get it. Persistence is not an easy thing to continue going on and on when you're not sure exactly what the outcome is going to be. And you've got to take these steps sort of into the darkness and you wonder, well, is it going to happen or isn't it? Persistence and pressing on isn't easy. It wasn't easy for Darby and his family and his friends. And it's not easy for us. Because, you see, to live out the Christian life, to do what we're called to do, takes persistence. It takes pressing on. It takes this thing called grit and stick to because it's not easy to live out this Christian life. In addition to going through all the normal struggles that everybody else goes through, as a Christian, you're called to swim upstream. You're called to go against the culture. You're called not to do things the way everybody else is doing them. That can almost add an extra layer of struggle on what 
already can be a difficult life. And I know that some of you came here this morning struggling. It may be financial pressures. It may be health. It may be family. It could be any number of things that you are having to press through in order to live out this Christian life that we are called to press on and live through. And if you're going to be completely honest, you could be thinking to yourself, am I sure it's worth it? Because I know that you know someone. It could be a friend. It could be a family member. And for some reason, they used to be here. They used to be among us. They used to profess faith. And for whatever reason, it seems like they've kind of fallen off the radar. Some people will press on for a while. And then kind of like that guy, Darby, they stop. They don't feel like they've hit gold. And maybe for a time you dropped out of church and you came back. This happens somewhat frequently. And I'm even reminded of a young pastor I just heard about. This was tragic. 29 years old at a large church in California who recently just took his own life and succumbed to just what seemed like an overwhelming sense of darkness. So how do you do it? How do you keep pressing on? How do you keep on in this Christian life that just seems like it it just can feel like a desert you're dragging yourself through? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Pressing on. We'll be in Philippians chapter 3. We'll be looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses, uh, chapter 3, 12 verses to to verses 4, 1. Those, that uh, last part of chapter 3. And if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Three twelve to four one. Not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do: forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You may be seated. So today we're going to walk through this passage, and we're going to talk about these ways of perseverance. We're going to look at six ways to press on in the Christian life. I don't know where you are this morning, but I believe this is going to be very helpful to you and give you hope if you are in a challenging place. So let's start going through this passage. 
And we see here in verse 12 that Paul begins by pointing out um, something that I am extremely thankful for. He starts out by explaining that he's not all that. He's saying, I haven't arrived. And he says there in verse 12, he says, Not that I've already obtained this, or am already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus made me his own. Now think for just for a moment how these Philippians probably viewed Paul. Because he's like this hero of the faith. We don't really have anybody in our experience that mirrors Paul. I mean, this, he, he raised a guy from the dead. He's healed people. Um, he's planted churches all over the place, okay? So this guy is like one of those heroes of the faith. He's a big dog. He does it well. And he was a Christian for about 30 years by the time he wrote this book to the Philippians, this letter. So he goes beyond a Billy Graham. Nobody really compares the spiritual giant that we have in Paul. And he wanted to make it very clear to the Philippians that he, just like them, is a work in progress. He's like, I'm not there yet. Okay? He said, I haven't attained it yet. I'm getting there. I'm closer than I used to be. But he's saying, I'm not arrived. And there we get our, our very first way to press on the Christian life. First of all, by accepting that we too haven't arrived. We're not there yet either. Like Paul, we're this work in progress. We still sin. We're still battling the flesh. We still do the things that we don't want to do. Uh, <clears throat> I have a heart that's susceptible to bitterness, to jealousy. And I'm battling these things. And as badly as we don't want to sin, as badly as it can make us feel, we still do. Unfortunately, it's still part of the program. Even though we may hate it, it's, it's where we are. You know, I recall a conversation uh, whenever I was in seminary. Uh, Howard Hendricks, I talk about him a lot. He just he made a big impact on my life. He told us about a conversation he had with this older professor, and he said, you know, I went to that man, and this older professor, he was about 80 years old. And he said, when did you stop battling lust? And this older professor, again, about 80 years old, looked at him and said, well, when I get there, I'll let you know. <laughs> it was still a battle. You know, when do you quit battling these things? Well, it's when... You get a lot further down the road. It's when God takes you home. So Paul's saying, I'm not there. I'm not there yet. We're not there yet. And Paul, what Paul is introducing to the Philippians, um, it's one of these Christianese words we use. It's called sanctification. So you could actually look at salvation in three different aspects, if you will. It looks like this. So in the past, we were justified. And it's an amazing, amazing event. When we are justified before God, just at the moment of belief, at the moment of faith, not a single sin is held against us. As a matter of fact, you may have heard that definition of justification. It's God forgiving me and treating me just as if I had never sinned. So that's like this past aspect of salvation. 
And then you get to this present place of salvation, which is where all Christians living on earth are right now. It's this place of sanctification. We are being saved from the power of sin. So we have been saved in the past, and we are being saved right now from the power of sin. And it's this struggle we go through where we make some progress and we mess up. We make some progress and we mess up. But we should be trending in the right direction. We should be trending upward. That's this process of sanctification, which is what Paul's talking about here uh, through these next few verses. So we have been saved, we are being saved, and in another sense, we are going to be saved in the future. This is glorification. We will be saved from the presence of sin. But as the scriptures say, it's appointed for man once to die. Death is that final stage of our sanctification where we, we get rid of this body, right? And eventually we'll be resurrected and we'll get a new one, a glorious one. So Paul is talking about this middle stage, this stage of sanctification, this painful process that you and I are going through where we're being made more like Christ. That's what he's introducing to this uh, church in Philippi. That's what we're going through right now. So we continue then in verses 13 and 14. And Paul says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. And now he starts to set forth this imagery of a runner. Uh, and he says, uh, But one thing I do, he says, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So he's depicting this runner, and, and the runner is singularly focused and winning the race. And, and let's look at what he's doing. First of all, this runner is eliminating distractions, not looking behind. And he, and he uses this verb, forgetting what lies behind. And, and what does he mean by this? And that word forgetting literally means not giving any account to, overlooking, um, to care nothing about. Now, some people take that to mean, well, he's talking about his pre-Christian past, right? He was kind of a bad dude. The other people say, no, 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 he's thinking about that 30-year span of time where he's had all these victories and successes. Well, I want to submit to you, I think he's talking about both, right? First of all, I think he's talking about his screw-ups, and he screwed up big time. He was this Pharisee who oversaw the killing of Christians. That was his job. He was like the, he was like the John Wayne Gacy of his time. He was there when Stephen was stoned, and he was zealous to persecute Christians. And this is where we get this second way we press on, is by forgetting past mistakes. I have to discipline my mind not to be overcome some days by the mistakes I've made in the past. When that starts to creep in, that little haunting of something I did or something I said, I have to stop, and I have to recall this. No, wait, I was meditating on this this morning while I was praying. We are justified. God has forgiven us and treats us just as if we had never, ever sinned. Amen. He's not holding those past mistakes against you. So don't hold them against yourself. And if somebody out there is reminding you of it, ignore them. God's not holding that against us. He makes that clear. Um, he, he tells us in his word that he's not holding it against us. 
So don't get caught up by your past. But then there's this other side of the coin as well. Not only do we want to forget our past mistakes. See, again, Paul's been a believer for about 30 years. He's planted lots of churches. He raised a man from the dead. He's done a lot of good stuff in those 30 years. But in the same way you want to forget your past mistakes, you also don't want to rest on your past victories. Uh, if, if you start thinking, you know what? I, I've shared the gospel enough. I've taught enough. I've suffered enough. I've done enough of that. Let somebody else do that. You know, churches go into a death spiral when they start resting on past victories. If you've taught in the past, good. Do it again. If you've served in the past, great. Do it again. We've still got lots and lots of work to do. I hope by the grace of God, if it's his will, I want to be able to preach for the next 25 years right here on this platform by the grace of God. But I don't ever want to think, hey, I did something back then. Yeah, you know, I preached a good sermon two weeks ago. I think I'm going to slack off this week. Yeah, we'll just coast. No, we do not want to get caught up in past victories. Keep moving forward. That is, God does not intend for us to rest on the past. So moving forward, we go on to verses, uh, continue with verses 13, and we look at the, the end there of 13. Paul says, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal. Now for Paul, the goal is not going to be achieved here on earth. It's not going to happen while he's here on earth. He's pressing and he's straining forward. And notice these verbs. He doesn't say skipping along. He doesn't say, I'm tiptoeing through life. No, it's straining, it's pushing, it's pressing. Nothing indicates that this is easy. He's sitting in a prison writing these things right now, looking for opportunities to share the gospel. These are words of effort. This is a man participating. Again, this sanctification thing, God is 100% behind it. 100% working at it in us, through us, sanctifying us. At the same time, we are 100% involved too. It's 100-100. Don't ever forget that. Yes, we are straining, and yes, God is also working. Both things are happening. My wife is a, is a runner. And uh, last night we were talking, and, and I said, so when you're running one of these marathons, I got a no clue what this is like. I said, when you're running one of these marathons, do you get to a point where you sort of have to push through pain? And I wish you could have seen the look on her face when I asked her that question. She just stared at me, and she said, yes. She said, Chad, you can get to mile three, and you start hurting. And she said, you've got to push on another, was it 23 miles? Was it 26 miles? I don't know. How many miles are in a marathon? Long ways. A lot further than any distance I ever plan on running, unless it's for my life. But she said, yes, you've got to hurt and you strain and you push and the knees hurt. She said one time she was wearing a new pair of shorts and the, the tag in the back, she, it was pressing against her skin. And she said it just rubbed the skin right off her back where that tag was hitting. I was like, well, there's one more reason. I'm not going to be running anywhere. I don't need that in my life. But it's not easy. 
And this is what Paul is alluding to. Uh, no doubt the, the Greek games were in his mind when he was talking about this. That was something the Philippians would have been very aware of, uh, watching those athletes moving and, and, and straining themselves. And then what is Paul straining toward? He says it there at the end of verse 14. He calls it the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And for Paul, this surpasses that little celery wreath thing that you would get when you participate in one in the Greek games. He's saying something else here. He's saying this is uh, this, this prize that keeps on giving you um, the winnings. It's a prize that will continue on being a prize. It's this upward call. It's to say this heavenly call. Uh, and by being a Christian, you accepted a call. Experientially, we come to Christ in all kinds of different ways. You may have walked down an aisle. You may have been driving to work and the gospel made sense. But in doing that, the scripture said you actually you accepted a call. And it was this call to heaven. And we often use that word calling, we usually use it in the sense of a vocation, but Scripture sin, seems to be using it differently. And it's this call issued forth by God for you that you accepted when you became a Christian. And that's what Paul's referring to here. It's something that we accept by faith. It's eternity in heaven with the Lord. And Paul says it happened in Christ Jesus, meaning that it was his death and resurrection that created the way. This work of Christ is affected and applied to us by faith. That's this upward call in Christ Jesus. Christ is the end and the means of the call. And then Paul takes the attention off himself, and he moves it towards the Philippians. And he kind of brings all this together in verses 15 and 16. And he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. And even though Paul may be sitting in a prison, which is where he's at when he's writing Philippians, um, he's using this language to talk about how mature people think. And in essence, he's saying, don't give up too early. The mature believer continues on. Unlike Mr. Darby, who unfortunately fell three feet short of hitting that gold seam, the mature believer presses on, continues on, doesn't lose sight of what they're doing. And then he qualifies this um, at the end uh, there, verse 15, and I love this. He says, if you think something differently, God will, that also God will reveal to you. Well, what does that mean? This is what I love. He's saying, you know what, if some of you are slow to pick up on this, he's saying God will reveal it to you. For those of you who aren't quite as mature yet, just hang on. God's going to show you that too. That's so encouraging. I can be a little slow. So that really encourages me. And then there's, a safe, so there's that safety net there. And then in verse 16, he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. So what does he mean by all this? And, and I like the way Gordon Fee puts it. He says that in the face of opposition and some internal dissension, some of them, referring to these Philippians, have lost their vision for and focus on their crucified and risen Lord, including his coming again. 
that Paul's concerned that something has drawn away their gaze. Remember, there were, there were these false teachers coming in, these Judaizers, not to mention dissension going on within the church. And he's saying there's no need to become sort of paralyzingly discouraged over this. Some of these Philippians had given in to temptation. They're susceptible to being pulled away from God to some kind of a lesser idol, something in this, in this world. So I think there's a need here for us as well. And I'll explain what this means. But pressing on in the Christian life also means being creatively persistent. Creatively persistent. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me, let me illustrate it first, and then I'll talk about it a little bit more. There was a guy by the name of, I'm going to try to pronounce this right, Ali Demerkaya, also called Crazy Ali, who was a huge soccer fan. He was such a soccer fan that they kicked him out of the stadium and I believe this is in, um, I believe this is in uh, uh, Egypt that this was happening. He got so crazy at soccer games, he said, Ali, you can't come back, you've got to leave. But he was such a fan of soccer, he couldn't stand not to be there when his team made it to the championship. So this is what he did. He rented a crane. <laughs> so there he is. Here's the, here's the, here's the field. And that's him. This is what you call creative persistence. <laughs> if something is important to you, you'll get creative to make sure you don't miss out. You'll get creative, or you'll get creative to make sure you miss out on something that you don't want to participate in. Um, so what does that mean for you and I to get creative about being persistent? Well, it may mean, for example, you've got to get creative to, to be in church on a Sunday. It may mean you've got to be creative about getting a ride. It may be, you may have to be creative about what you do on Saturday night to make sure you get here on a Sunday. That's persistence. It may mean that you have to reschedule um, something to make sure you're not around someone that could be a source of temptation for you. Or how you use your computer or how you use your phone. I'll never forget a friend of mine said he had to change his route to work in the morning uh, because he said every, every, every day coming to work, he said, I would drive past this one billboard. And he said, and he described it almost in excruciatingly detail of, of what it was he saw. It was, a, it was a woman on the billboard. And he said, I could not drive past that billboard without staring at that woman. So he had to find a new route to work. That's called creative persistence. That you're going to come up with some way to avoid a temptation. Some way to be where you need to be. Thinking through it and being creative. This is about choosing God in everyday life. That's the kind of persistence it takes. Now, if you screw up, you screw up. You know what the good news is? There's always forgiveness right there waiting on you. But we need to be persistent against the things that are drawing us away from God. So then Paul, uh, he's going to make an appeal and an indictment, and he starts there in verse 17, an appeal and an indictment. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. I always struggle a little bit when Paul uses that language. 
hey, be like me. Imitate me. But fortunately, we see Paul's a humble dude, right? He's, he's already been clear. Look, I'm not perfect, so he's not saying imitate me in everything. But he is saying imitate me uh, in this. Uh, he's telling them imitate me in the way that I'm pursuing the way of Christ's likeness. And then he gives them a command. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So he's saying to look to the ones who are living in such a way. And that gives us our, our next way of pressing on, looking to godly role models. Press on by looking to godly role models. We need godly examples. This is, the, this is something that I love about First Baptist Church, by the way, is that it is intergenerational. Because, see, I need to look to the examples of faith in people that are older than me who have been through the hard stuff of life. And I've gotten to hear some of your stories. Many of you trusted Christ at a young age, but you've buried loved ones. You have been treated bitterly. And yet, I look around, and here you are. You have endured. And you know what? You are showing the rest of us how to live out your faith. You know what? Just showing up is so important. Just showing up so we can sit by you and you can be examples to the rest of us of how to endure in the faith. You are living out an example of how to press on. So for those of us that are, I don't know, 1 to 50 or whatever, 1 to 6, look to the people that are here. Look to the people who've kept the faith. These are godly examples. They haven't given up. They haven't walked away, uh, even though it has not always been an easy journey. People who are living and trusting God, knowing that the best is yet to come. And now Paul knows that everyone is going to come through this town of Philippians. So, so Paul is, is, is warning these Philippians, people are coming through this town. Some are going to be an example, uh, and, and some are not going to be such a good example. And he, he makes that clear in 18 and 19. He says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So we see that Paul is now grieving a group of people. Um, he indicates this. He says, I'm writing this with tears. He says, There are these people walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. And it's hard to pinpoint exactly who these people are, but something is clear. And he's making these observations of them. They're clearly not walking as though they have, as though they have accepted the gospel of Christ. He says, first, they are enemies of the cross. And, and what does that mean? It means they've rejected the gospel. They found some other way to live apart from Christ that to them makes perfect sense. And this is a little scary because they're making sense of a life apart from Christ. Which is why they, uh, they're going to reach the big, they're, they're ending. And we see it in verse 19. It says their end is destruction. That doesn't mean they're simply going to be annihilated, by the way. That means they are going to live in eternity apart from Christ in eternal condemnation. Then Paul makes a second observation. He says their God is their belly. The only thing they're concerned about is getting their physical pleasures met. 
That's it. That's what they're living for. They have this unrestrained gluttony. They remind me of my dog. He'll do anything for a milk bone. He'll stand in the cold for a milk bone. And then my wife yells, dinner's ready, and I come running just like that dog does whenever it's time to eat. Then third, they glory in their shame. Well, what does that mean? It means the very thing they should be ashamed of, they're actually taunting. And it kind of reminds me of this thing. PPS did this special, uh, and, and they came out with this term called affluenza. It's this documentary about how people live in the United States. And the definition of affluenza is the bloated, sluggish, and unfulfilled feeling that results from efforts to keep up with the Joneses. People whose glory and what they want to show off is their materialism or whatever idol it may be. And then finally, Paul says that they have minds that are set on earthly things. Now, remember where we started. Um, Paul was making the point that he set his mind on this prize that was set before him, that was knowing Christ himself, getting to be with him for all eternity. But this crowd is totally different. They have a focus that is earthward. It's not focused on the things above. It's focused on the things below. And Paul doesn't want the, in, the Philippians to be influenced at all by this crowd. So this is our next point. Press on the Christian life by guarding against these kinds of bad influences. Guard against these kinds of bad influences. You know, if there's any group out there that should be unbiased besides Christians, you know who it should be? Referees. Referees are supposed to be completely unbiased. However, they did a study of referees. They did a study of 1,400 referees and found this to not always be the case. I know, and in this study, they found out on the football field, whenever there's a penalty that happens close to one of the sidelines, the referees tend to side in favor with that team close to the penalty. And if you watch, they know this. The team knows this, the coaches know this, because they'll start screaming a call in their own favor. And what you find out is, is that intimidation is actually very effective. The referee will tend to side with that side. And you know what? We are just as susceptible. So who are you letting in? Who are you letting get close to you? Uh, be very careful, especially, especially when, when you're young. For those of us that are here that... If you're in elementary school, junior high, high school, be very careful about who you decide to be friends with because they're going to have some kind of an influence on you. So guard against who you're letting in. Who are you letting close? And then Paul, Paul finally reminds these Philippians uh, in verses 20 21 of where they're a citizen. And he says there, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. If you've ever been concerned about God being able to resurrect someone who is total dust and ashes, don't worry about it. This is a non-issue. Um, Paul's telling this church, you're physically here on earth, you're in a Roman colony, but you, in truth, are part of another kingdom. Your citizenship belongs somewhere else. Last week, I spoke about these seven core doctrines of 
Christianity, these seven orthodox doctrines, the last one started with an R, restoration. Someday God is going to come back and he's going to restore all things, including you and I. He's going to resurrect us. We're going to get a new body. That's where our hope lies. Then, at that time, that's this prize. That's this thing we're straining towards. He'll use his immense power. And we'll give up these pathetic bodies and all these sins that go along with them, the bitternesses and the jealousies. And our satisfaction will be totally complete. And then Paul ends there in verse 4-1 with one last charge. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. He says, stand firm. We stand firm while we wait. We stand firm until Christ comes back. That's what we're called to right now. To be here, to press on. So then to sum it all up, these six, press on the Christian life by accepting we haven't arrived. We're not there yet. Forgetting our past mistakes. Not resting on past victories. Being creatively persistent. Looking to godly role models. And then lastly, guarding against bad influences. I want to close with this, uh, this picture of a missionary. His name's William Carey. And he lived in a small village in England. He became the apprentice of a cobbler. Uh, and he lived this pleasant little life, and he got married, and then things just started to go south. He and his wife had a daughter, uh, and when she was two years old, she passed away. Then not long after that, they sunk into poverty. They lived in poverty for three years, and during that time they were in poverty, he pressed on. He had this extremely enthusiastic faith, so on his own, he started learning Greek and Hebrew and Latin. So in the midst of this pain and hurt, he's, he's living out this enthusiasm that he has for Christ. And eventually he wants to become a preacher. He becomes a Baptist preacher, and then he becomes a missionary. And he goes on to the mission field. He takes his wife, and he's got some more kids by now. And then while they're on the missionary field in India, he loses his five-year-old son to dysentery. And that pushes his wife over the edge. And she, she becomes mentally deranged, and at one point she even tries to kill him with a knife. And someone came to him and said, how are you able to endure? This is the man who went to India. He translated the Bible in all of these native uh, Indian languages. He inspired David Livingston and all of these well-known missionaries that were to come. He founded a mission society. And somebody said, how are you able to do it? And he answered by saying this, three words. I'll never forget this. He said, I can plod. He said, I can plod. He said, I can do this thing one step at a time. And he wanted to say that he, I can persevere to any definite pursuit. And my encouragement to you this morning, no matter what difficulty you may be going through, no matter how hard this Christian walk may seem at this point, is to just keep plodding. Keep taking it day by day. Keep taking it step by step. Moment by moment, keep pressing on. Please pray with me. Lord, we love you. God, even when we aren't consistent, you are always consistent. Even when life seems like 
it's coming to, that we're reaching our end, Lord. You're saying just keep straining. Just a few more steps. It's worth it. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank, for you, thank you for your pursuit of us. Lord, help us as we pursue you. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. Thank you all so much for being here today. You're dismissed. I encourage you to stick around for the beginning of the next service. We'll be baptizing nine folks today. We'll see you then.